continue in our study. We're dealing with Bible truth and we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And as we've gone along here over these last weeks, we've talked about what part did the Holy Spirit play in creation. And we said, what part did the Holy Spirit play in the Old Testament overall? How about during the incarnation of Christ? We talked about that as well. We said, what's his part or role in the dispensation of grace? And then we started talking about what part does the Holy Spirit play in the church? And along the way, we noted the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church. First of all, at the first church council in Acts 15, we talked about how his role in that aspect of the early on with Ananias and Sapphira, and then in reference to choosing and sending out his preachers. And uh, so tonight, we want to continue in that same realm as we deal with the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church and we're going to talk about, to begin with, in revealing the things of Christ to the church. And so let's uh, take a, just a moment. We'll have a quick word of prayer to pray God's blessing on the message. And then we'll consider this topic as well as maybe some others as time permits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to gather here tonight and to, well, Lord, to glean from your word. And Lord, our goal is to grow in Christ. We want to become better for you. Lord, we know, Father, that the world and the devil is always pulling us and trying to cause us, Father, to be distracted from you. But, Lord, we want to focus our attention on you tonight. 
I pray that you would remove the distractions. I pray that our hearts would be knit together tonight, that our minds would be directed toward you and your word, that, Father, we would take these next few minutes and really allow your word to speak to us and to even change us. God, please do your work in our lives. Now fill me with your spirit and allow me to be your mouthpiece. Father, I'm begging you to do a work in my heart as you, Father, also help each to listen with spiritual ears. Father, help us now, we pray. We need you desperately in Christ's name. Amen. So we talk about the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church in revealing the things of Christ to the church. He's going to reveal some things to the church. Turn to John chapter 16, would you? John chapter 16, verse 13. Again, we've been just, uh, I think, kind of amazed at the level of participation that the Holy Spirit has in both our lives as well as in our churches. I mean, He is indispensable. He's absolutely necessary and essential. And uh, as we look here in the book of John chapter 16, we realize that the Holy Spirit reveals the things of Christ to the church. In John 16, 13, the Lord Jesus speaking says, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. And He will shew you things to come. And He shall glorify Me, for He shall receive of Mine, and shall shew it unto you. Again, we notice it says, He will guide you into all truth. He'll show you things to come. He, he will show it unto you. I mean, it's a, the Holy Spirit plays this major role here. And again, Jesus is making it perfectly clear that the Spirit of God was the ultimate teacher and the ultimate guide, that He would, he would illuminate their understanding, that He would lead them into truth, and that truth is still the case today. The Holy Spirit of God is absolutely essential and necessary if we truly seek illumination and guidance. If we want to know where to go next, we must depend on the Holy Spirit giving us leadership. We sometimes neglect His promptings and we fail to allow Him to influence us as He deems necessary and as He would like to and as God says is absolutely necessary. But we're going to see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. We say is the natural man. He uses that word natural man. The natural man is one who's not saved. The natural man's one who hasn't received Christ as their Savior. The natural man doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them and living in them. And the Bible says here that this unsaved man or woman is at a very severe disadvantage seeing that he does not live inside them. Therefore, he is unable to guide and illuminate as he would like. And boy, unless they're coming to Christ to the point of the cross, unless they're finding His love at the cross, the Holy Spirit is having a hard time doing anything with them or helping them understand truth. They can read the Bible, but they won't fully comprehend or understand it as God intended without the Spirit of God working and moving. The necessity of the Spirit of God in the life of the believer is a non-negotiable and if we hope to make heads or tails of the Scriptures, 
then we must have the Holy Spirit living in us, guiding us and directing us, because He reveals the truth. Therefore, He has to be present. And boy, if we want to experience that understanding and we want to experience the application of the Word of God in our life, then we must really depend on the Spirit of God to do so. Now, what we are saying then is that you cannot truly understand spiritual matters without the Spirit of God. It's that simple. That's what we're really saying. And it's not enough to be educated or trained in the Scriptures. You know, you can go to Bible college or you can take courses here at the church or go to Sunday school or sit and listen to the messages. You can read your Bible and even study it. But if you neglect the spiritual leadership of the Holy Ghost in your life, then you're not going to really come out spiritually strong. It's so imperative and important to understand that one must possess the Spirit and experience the fullness of the Spirit as well. The disciples were not even permitted, weren't even allowed to speak until they were endued with power from on high. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 24, verse 49. As Jesus Christ ascends back to the Heavenly Father, he leaves the disciples and he says, by the way, you're to do nothing, nothing at all, until you're endued with power from on high. I mean, he's saying, listen, you are, you are going to be helpless and hopeless without the Holy Spirit of God. You will be powerless without the Spirit of God in your life. Powerless. Notice what he says in Luke 24, 49. He says, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. We noted this in our series on Sunday mornings, but the fact is is that the the Lord told them to go to Jerusalem and stay there and do nothing until they received the promise of the Spirit of God. They're waiting. They're they're being patient on His arrival because when He arrives, then they'll be endued with power. That will enable them to accomplish the calling of God and the purpose of God for their life. If you and I ever hope to accomplish what God called us to do or purposes us to accomplish in our lives, it will not be without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And may I say that just because He indwells us does not mean that He empowers us. It is another thing, it's a totally different subject to be filled with the Spirit than it is to be indwelt by Him only. It's important to recognize that there is a surrender that comes to the Spirit of God and a recognition that comes in order for Him to have place in our life. Oh, He may indwell us, but He does not control us. And if He doesn't control us, likely we're not experiencing His power in our life. And so it's absolutely necessary that we keep in mind the necessity of the Holy Spirit and His person in our life. Until you be endued with power from on high, you fellas stay right where you are because I don't care how long you traveled with me. It doesn't matter how much you can witness about my miracles in the past. It doesn't matter to me that you even believe in the resurrection because if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God literally fusing that truth with His presence and power, it's futile. The Apostle Paul, again, understood that no matter how prepared, no matter how dramatic or logical or convincing or energetic or articulate his message may be, it was shallow, hollow, vain, empty, and just useless without the presence of the Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Ghost. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Wow, the Spirit of God. Have you ever taught a Sunday school lesson and thought, Spirit wasn't there? You ever done that? You ever witnessed to somebody and thought, man, I didn't feel the Spirit of God there at all? And again, I know we got to be careful with feelings. But unless we invoke the presence of the Holy Spirit in those areas of our life, there's a, there's a possibility He just isn't there. I mean, just to assume He's supposed to show up, we could talk to Samson about that, strong man in the Bible, you know? He shook himself and he went out as before. He assumed that he had the very presence and the power of God on his life still. That his strength would still be with him. But when he entered out there to battle, he realized he did not have any strength. He didn't even realize the Spirit had left him. And unless we are conscious and cognitive of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, I think many times we are neglecting him and we must be prepared for the consequence, which is a powerless ministry or a powerless life. The scriptures must be infused with Holy Spirit power if they're to be understood and ultimately accomplished and and to ultimately accomplish what God intended. And that's what we're saying. The necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church. He reveals the things of Christ to the church. If we're going to know the Lord, if we're going to understand his purpose and plan for the ministry, the church, and the people of God, it is going to come through the Holy Spirit. He's going to provide that for us. If you want to use concrete and, and pour a slab of concrete, you have usually a mix, and it's, uh, you have the concrete itself, which is a, basically a very powdery substance, and of course there's usually little rocks in it and stuff like that, and it's kind of, it's coarse and so forth, but it's powdery. It's not until you add the water to it, mix it together, that it really becomes the concrete that we understand that provides a, you know, a concrete drive or some kind of concrete driveway type thing. You know what I'm saying. And you know what? That's the way it is in our lives. We're a bunch of, just a bunch of powder, you know what I mean? A bunch of gravelly powder until the Spirit of God's added to our life, and then all of a sudden it becomes useful and powerful and strong. Boy, I tell you, we need to be aware of that and very seriously in search of that in our lives, the Spirit of God in our life. Now, we note the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church in revealing the things of Christ to the church, but also in reference to the new birth. You know, a a big part of what's going on in the church age is that he's he's what? The Holy Spirit's calling out a people. He's calling out the bride of Christ. Well, how's he do that? Well, he does it through the new birth. Now, there can be no salvation without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, what he's doing is he's implanting the new nature or the divine nature within the heart of a person. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 6. It's it's imperative that we preach the gospel. We understand that the word of God will not return void. However, there is no salvation without the Holy Spirit being involved. There is none. It's it's important to understand this. Um, Somebody can pray a prayer. They can... Uh, believe all the things they should believe, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't draw them and 
bring them to Christ, if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict them of sin, if the Holy Spirit is not involved in creating this, this new man, if you will, or implanting them with the divine nature, there's something, they're missing it. And it's a supernatural work. Notice what it says here. It's in John 3, 6 and 7. That which is born of the flesh, and of course Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now the supernatural element cannot be dismissed here again. Turn to 2 Peter 1.4. It's so important. There's, these, there's obviously two births then. You're born in the spirit, you're, or excuse me, the flesh, you're born in the spirit. And that spiritual birth, again, it's a supernatural thing. It's not something you necessarily see at salvation with your, your, your eyes themselves. It's something that takes place in a supernatural realm, a spiritual realm. Now, you may see evidence of it. Someone says, well, boy, you should have seen them. They were so emotional when they came to Christ. That's fine, but you don't have to be emotional for a, spiritual, a supernatural work to be done in a spiritual nature. It doesn't, that's not necessarily the case, but sometimes you can see evidence of this taking place, no doubt. But look what he says in 2 Peter 1.4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Again, being that ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, we understand that, that, that we are atomic in nature by birth, right? We, we, we have the atomic nature. Well, we need a divine nature. See, that's the first Adam. We need the, the nature of the second Adam, the Bible calls it. That's Christ. And when we get saved, the Holy Spirit does a supernatural work and implants the divine nature in us, if you will, Christ in us. It's a wonderful thing. Right. And if that doesn't happen... You're none of his. It's so important to realize this. Now, that's why the Bible says that we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It, it's amazing to me. you know. And again, it's, it's hard to wrap our minds around. But think about the change that takes place the moment we come to Christ. Because here we are in this atomic nature, and, and, and now all of a sudden, because of our faith and in Christ and receiving accepting the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes in and implants us with the divine nature. Christ in us. Listen, is there any wonder that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 then, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creature. He's a new creation. There's nothing the same about him. There's nothing the same about her anymore. Because literally, the divine nature exists within. You say, man, I still struggle with sin. Yeah, but you better struggle with it, because if you're not, then something's missing, and it very well sounds like the divine nature. Because, see, there ought to be someone in there saying, bad idea. And somebody in there may be saying, good idea. But there better be a conflict, because if there's no conflict, then there's no divine nature. Yes, amen. We're new creatures in Christ. Therefore, as he puts it here, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
That old life, that old person, not the same anymore. Not saying that you won't struggle potentially. Not saying that you won't have difficult times and struggle with temptation and all those things. But there better be a struggle of sorts. If not, then it could be there's no divine nature. And if there's no divine nature, there's no supernatural birth. And no supernatural birth, no salvation. I don't care how many times you prayed. You say, I just thought if I prayed that prayer, I'd be saved. Prayers don't save people. Hearts save people. Your heart to Christ. That prayer, hopefully, was a reflection of your heart. But sometimes people have prayed prayers because they thought, well, let me just say this prayer and I'll get saved. If it's just a prayer you're depending on, friend, you're lost. It better be a promise you're depending on. A promise to know that if I call on the Lord, I'll be saved. Not just the prayer itself, but the fact that God promised me something and I believe exactly what the Bible said. Now listen, I'm not opposed to prayers. You gotta pray. You gotta confess your sin. I understand that. You have to call on the name of the Lord. Yeah, I get it. But I'm telling you, I believe there are people who have said prayers that are no more saved than the man on the moon. That's all I'm saying. And you know what? If you don't have this divine nature, if you don't have something inside that's extremely different than it was before you got saved, if there's not any noticeable change on the inside, my friend, then there might be a reason to start asking yourself, is there any change at all? And I know that you're here tonight and you're in church and you want to learn about the Word of God and so I pray and trust that should be a good evidence that maybe we've made some good decisions. However, let's be careful. Let's be careful with things like this. When we lead someone to Christ, let's be begging the Lord to show up. Man, the Holy Spirit needs to be there, not just me with my Bible. The Holy Spirit must be there. And that's, the, that's, the, that's what I'm trying to express, and that's what the Word of God teaches us, that the, the note, we note the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church in reference to the new birth. There is no new birth without the Holy Spirit. There would be no body of Christ without the Holy Spirit. Look at what the apostle says in Romans chapter 6. Turn over to Romans 6, verse 3. It is kind of strange and kind of funny, isn't it? You know, if I say certain things like that, sometimes there's somebody maybe, and I don't know this is the case, but possibly somebody thinking, why are you trying to get me to doubt my salvation? And if I get you to doubt it that easy, boy, my friend, you, need to better, you better settle it. Really, you do. You need to start thinking about some things. If something that simple causes you to go, oh, did I just say a prayer? Now, you mean to tell me you don't have more evidence than just the prayer in your life? Do you have any desire for the things of Christ? Well, yeah. Do you want to be closer to the Lord than you used to be? Of course. Man, do you have a desire to obey the Lord the best you can? Yes. And those are good things. That's wonderful stuff. Those are good examples of the change that comes when we do experience that divine nature. However, I'm just saying, it's a spiritual thing. Man, I mean, let's, let's let the Lord do his work. You do things God's way. You call on the Lord, you believe that he died for you, paid for your sin, rose again for you. You receive and accept him as being the only payment for your sin. Yeah, you're going to pray, whether it's out loud or in your heart. But let me tell you what, more than likely, about the very moment you decided to pray, you were probably already saved. That's, I, I mean, I'm just saying, I think many people before they ever hit the altar have already trusted Christ. 
without the prayer because they had already ascended to that point and cried out to God, oh God, forgive me. I know I need you right now. I'm going forward because I, I need you as my Savior. Uh, wow, that sounds a lot like the inner man saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I'm just saying it's a possibility. I'm not, I, you know, in heaven one day, I just, we'll, we'll see all that stuff, how it washes out. But, you know, I'm just, just kind of throwing it out there. But anyway, Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Look at what the Bible says here. The Apostle Paul, he points out this change, too, that takes place in our life. He says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? By the way, he's not talking about that one up there. Not that baptism. You don't get baptized into Jesus Christ in the waters up there. You just got baptized into some water. But he's talking about being baptized into the person Christ. Holy Spirit does that kind of baptism. That's a supernatural work again. Okay, that's a picture of what takes place, but that ain't the real deal. So he goes on, verse 4, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Again, this is going to be something that happens as a result of the divine nature of Christ in us, us being in him and him being in us. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Again, notice that that old man is crucified with him. And then he goes on in verse 12, let not sin uh, therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So we're seeing here that there's this transformation and change that takes place as a result of the Holy Spirit working in our life. A supernatural birth, a divine nature that's implanted in us, Christ in us, and as a result of that, we are dead to who we were. We're alive unto God and unto Christ. And we're able now to do the things we could not do, and that is please God. You could never please God. Neither could I. You say, yeah, but I was a nice person, a good person. It doesn't matter. Not until the divine nature is implanted. Not until the Holy Spirit does this supernatural work are we able to really honor Christ and God the way he intended. Now, being equipped with the divine nature, we can overcome the old nature. And that's the wonderful thing. Again, let me say that. Being equipped with the divine nature, we can overcome the old nature. So salvation is not possible, again, without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, let me knock this out real quick. This is good. The prayer life of the believer, another area, necessity of the Holy Spirit in affairs of the church has to do with his investment or his, his place in the prayer life of the believer. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Again, we're admonished to pray always, right? That's what the Bible teaches but the passage tells us in Ephesians 6.18, in the Spirit. We are to pray in the Spirit. That's how our prayers are to be, in the Spirit. Now, Paul says this. He says this over in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Go ahead and turn there. We got a minute. Turn there, would you? I'm going to share three simple thoughts with you about prayer that I think you're really going to appreciate and like a lot. 
So let me just get to this real quick. But I do want to get to it. I don't want to waste too much time. I want to move quickly, but let's go here and get this done. Paul says in Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. He goes on to say, But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, it's obvious that the Spirit of God is extremely involved in our prayer lives, much more probably than we even realize. Now, Satan, just so you know, he is not threatened by the simple words of a believer's prayers. Your little words, my words, do not threaten Satan at all. He's not concerned at all. Go ahead and bow down and pray all you want, so to speak. Say all the words you want. That's fine. He's okay with that. Those are about going as high as the ceiling. The fact that the child of God is appealing to the mighty Father, the almighty God of the universe, that's what causes Satan to fear. It's when a person recognizes and understands who they're really praying to and reaches out to him. Satan doesn't fear eloquence in prayer. You can sound so eloquent and still not in the least bit cause him to quake or shake. He doesn't fear perseverance in prayer. You can pray over and over and over and over again the same prayer. We hear about that all the time. People saying the same prayer over and over and over. Certain religions and faiths have constant and continual the same prayer over. Repetitious prayer. Satan is not in the least bit concerned about that. That doesn't cause him to shake in his boots. He does not fear our understanding of the way prayer works. You can know how prayer works. You can say your prayers and you can still cause Satan to sit and go, no problem, keep it up. I'm fine with that. But what he does fear, he fears the simple fact that the needy child of God is at the mighty throne of God. When we get to the throne of God, that's when he quakes and that's when he shakes. Until we get there, he's okay with our prayers. Now again, Satan enlists every demon he can possibly gather together to block the believer's way to the throne of God. There's no demon, however. There's no angel prince. There's no fallen angel that can face the Spirit of God and the sword of God, if you will. The Word of God clears the way to the throne of God for the child of God. Now, when we pray, we enter into three realms. This is what I want you to get. Number one, we enter into the hidden place. Okay, that's that place. Remember, I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking in Matthew 6. He talks about that we're to enter into our closet. Remember, he talks about that. It provides seclusion and quiet. It could be our bedroom. Maybe it's a barn, a cathedral, a car. It could be a busy street even to some degree or some kind of bus seat. You could be sitting down and kind of falling into your own place. Now, the place doesn't really matter as long as we can somehow withdraw from, that, from the world in which we live. Now, again, most people aren't nearly focused enough to do something like that on a bus. But, I mean, still, we can reach the throne of God if we are focused enough. Again, he wants us to lift our hearts up to God. And so we've got to find that place 
that hidden place, that, that closet, if you will. Number two, the second realm is the heavenly place. Now, this is a tough one because it's that same place. Remember we talked about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. It, it's kind of where... It's kind of where the real battle takes place, where the blessings come in prayer. It's in the heavenlies. There's, there's these evil spirits that try to hinder us. They, try to, they, they, they even harass us. They have a tendency to distract us or, or possibly discourage us. You know, we get in that secret place, and next thing you know, it's hard to concentrate. We get in the secret place, and we start to, things just start to kind of blow up in our mind, and we can't concentrate on what we really went there to do, and that's to pray and to reach the throne room of God. And it's very hard at times. There's a real battle raging there. And that's why we need the whole armor of God, because that's really where prayer, prayer becomes a battle. In, in, in prayer, we battle wandering thoughts. In prayer, we battle wicked thoughts. Isn't it amazing how the devil brings the most worst thoughts to your mind sometimes when you're trying to get into God's presence? I mean, you're thinking, what? why did I think about that? That's disgusting. Why am I allowing myself to wander like that? Why am I allowing myself to think such wicked thoughts when I'm trying to reach the throne of God? In prayer, we battle worldly thoughts. You think about things like, for instance, just the material things in your life. Okay, we need money, we need food, we need clothing, we need things to meet our needs. Maybe you have an exam that you're taking in school that week, or possibly there's just, I mean, something that you're preoccupied with again. The cares of this world, it just seems to me that, boy, I'll tell you what, there's this battle. So we start with that hidden place. We, we draw away. We, we find a secluded place. We try to get where it's just us and where we can ultimately meet with God. And then the warfare begins because the truth is the real battle is getting into the presence of God, not getting in the closet. We think getting in the closet in a Christianity today is the hard part. It's not. Why is it that we're not seeing God work the way we want him to work? Because I think we do get in the closet, but we don't get into the throne room. Because we're still fighting the battle. Man, we're just trying to get our mind and our, our heart focused on him. We're just trying to climb out of this world up into heaven for a moment. And in that heavenlies, as we're making that journey through, the spa- through time and space to the throne room of God, we are being bombarded with Satan's just wandering thoughts and wicked thoughts and worldly thoughts, and it's a battle to get there. But that third realm is the holy place. At last, we find ourselves inside the veil. Cullen B. McAfee, he put it this way in a song. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, a place where sin cannot molest, near to the heart of God. Think about that. How many times have you and I gotten off our knees in prayer and felt like, man, we were just through a battle, but we never felt that peace? Because maybe we never arrived in the holy place. Oh, we got to the hidden place. We were in the heavenly place, but we were not in the holy place, literally in the throne room of God, in the presence of God. 
Man, we jump to prayer and we run right over to the closet. We shut the door real quick. We jump on our knees if that's how we do it or in our chair or wherever we might be. And we say, oh God, right now I've got this list of needs and demands. We rush into things and then we jump up and slam the door and run back to our lives again. And we wonder why there's all this burden and pressure on us. Why am I so frustrated still? How come it feels like my prayers aren't being answered? Why is it that I don't feel like God is really with me? I feel kind of like I'm still alone. That's good. Amen. It's because we may have gone off to the hiding place, so to speak, or, and, and reached the heavenly place where the battle took place, but we never got past the battle into the throne room. Because Satan's demons are waiting for us. The moment we close that door and try to get away from the world, the demons show up. And they say, we are going to keep you out of God's presence because the truth is our master is not one bit afraid of your simple words of prayer as long as you aren't reaching God's ear because God's the one we fear, not you. Boy, I'll tell you what. How many times have I prayed and I... It never got to God. I did my duty. I prayed. But I left there just as frustrated maybe or just as burdened as I did when I walked in the door. Boy, I tell you what, I, I hope you haven't experienced that like I have. But if you have, maybe it's because you too have gone to that hidden place and you tried you said, I'm going to go where I need to be because I want to meet with God. And as you got down on your knees or as you got in your chair, the battle began. I come up the steps today for church and I told my wife, I said, man, I fell asleep praying tonight. She said, you must really be tired. Hey, don't think for a minute that, and I, you know, and I was on my knees too, and my knees aren't the greatest. I I hurt sometimes when I'm on my knees. I still fell asleep. Man, I went to the closet. I mean, I went to the hidden place. And then I got in that heavenly place where the battles all start. My mind starts wandering. And next thing you know, I was out. I don't know that I reached the heavenly place. After I got up, I tried to reach the holy place then. I said, oh, God, I got to have you. I can't do this alone. I got to have you. So, Lord, I'm just going to sit and listen a while. Boy, I'll tell you, it's important. So all prayer and supplication, to be effective, has to be in the Spirit, he says. Again, we, we saw that there in that passage. And in, 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 uh, let me find the verse real quick. Um, oh, whoa, boy, I'm going the, wrong, going the wrong way here. I've got all these. Oh, Ephesians 6, 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So, we'll never really be praying. We're never really praying if we're just simply saying prayers. we got to get into the presence of God. And that sometimes takes a little extra time. Not, I'm not talking about hours. I'm just talking about we got to be conscious that we must reach the throne of God. Well, that's just some thoughts that we have tonight as we consider that. So we noted the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church, and we've noted a number of them. At the first church council in Acts, early on with Ananias and Sapphira, we noted his 
importance in reference to choosing and sending out preachers and revealing the things of Christ to the church in light of the new birth and in the prayer life of the believer. Noted all those things over these last couple weeks. We'll note some other things along the way, but for right now, we're talking about his affairs in the church. And so we'll look at some things as we look at, possibly we'll look into uh, the tribulation, maybe we'll look at, uh, well, a couple other things along the way. All right, well, that's it for tonight. How's your prayer life, right? That's what we've been discussing. Boy, I'll tell you what, I, I don't know. I mean, as a preacher, I, I see the need to always get better at that, to always work at my prayer life. Not so much to spend more time only in prayer, but to spend more quality time, to spend more time in the throne room. You know, closing ourselves in our closet's good, but that's when the battle starts. You and I both know that, don't we? It's time that we fight through the heavenlies and get to the throne room of God, to that holy place. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time that we have together tonight around your word. Thank you for the, the simplicity of it. But Lord, <clears throat> there's no doubt that, Lord, uh, we battle. There's a battle taking place, a spiritual warfare that, that, that rages in our life, especially in this area of prayer, Lord. It just, uh, the devil does not want us reaching you, that he doesn't want us being heard by you because when you get activated, when you get moving, then Lord, you can squelch him. You can stop him. You can literally crush him if you choose. And Lord, he knows that he's helpless against you and your power. But Lord, as if we're just simply saying words and we have yet to get into your presence, then Lord, we haven't really in any way threatened Satan, help us, Lord, just to be quick to get past the hidden place, the heavenly place, and into the holy place. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye